I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. On this episode of CardioScripts, I am rejoined by Dr. Ted Berry, who is a clinical pharmacist at the University of Wisconsin, where he primarily cares for patients managed by the Advanced Heart Failure Team. Welcome back, Dr. Berry. Thank you very much for having me back. It's my honor to be back for the second time. Yeah, the first time you were on, we were talking about the DAPA-HF trial, and that was in episode three in 2019. It's now 2021, and we're just going to pick up still talking about SGLT2 inhibitors and really how the role has evolved in the management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Absolutely. Let's get into it. The basis of our conversation today is around the Emperor Reduce trial, so I'm going to give everyone a little more information about it. It was a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that included patients who were greater than 18 and had chronic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and with an EF of less than 40% and class two through four symptoms. They attempted to limit enrollment of those with EFs greater than 30 by requiring either hospitalization within the last 12 months or elevated NT pro BNP on a scaled basis. Patients were excluded if they had untreated or undertreated heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, if they had recent acute cardiac condition like a stroke or a heart attack, if their EGFR was less than 20, or if they had a history of ketoacidosis. After a screening period of four to 28 days, 3,730 patients were randomized to either empagliflozin 10 milligrams daily or placebo. Patients were followed for a median of 16 months and the primary outcome evaluated was death from cardiovascular causes or hospitalization for heart failure. Key secondary outcomes were hospitalization for heart failure and the decline in estimated EGFR, which occurred during the double-blinded treatment. Patients that were included were a mean age of 67 years, about a quarter of them were female, 70% white, and half had diabetes. The mean ejection fraction was 27%, and about 50% had heart failure from a previous ischemic event. About 36% of patients had atrial fibrillation, and the mean EGFR was 62 Just so everyone has an idea of the baseline heart failure meds, 98% were on RAS inhibitors with 20% of those on a NEP inhibitor. MRA was used in 70% of patients and 95% were on beta blockers. The primary endpoint was statistically significantly lower in the empagliflozin-treated patients, occurring in 19.4% versus 24.7%, or an absolute risk reduction of 5.3% with a number needed to treat of 19 This was almost entirely driven by a 5% absolute risk reduction in hospitalizations. And we can dive more into the secondary outcomes through our conversation, but I think the bottom line was empagliflozin becomes another sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor that when given to people with heart failure with reduced ejection fractions, significantly lowered hospitalizations and ultimately slowed decline in renal function. So first, I just want to get your thoughts on this trial specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously more good good news for SGLT2 inhibitors and heart failure, kind of an extension of what we saw with DAP-HF as well, confirming that obviously the SGLT2 inhibitors in our patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction um, are going to play a pivotal role moving forward in guideline-directed therapy. In terms of the results, again, very similar with DAP-HF. I think 
the only difference when you're looking at what was driving the primary composite outcome or composite endpoint would be the fact that empagliflozin didn't actually reduce cardiovascular death or overall death to a statistically significant amount, like we saw in DAP-HF or dipagliflozin. Something notable. I don't think it's something that many people are putting a lot of weight into, I think, in terms of baseline characteristics. It was, for the most part, pretty similar. And ejection fractions were a little bit different, you could have argued, potentially. Some of the folks in the empagliflozin study were a little bit sicker, potentially, than the folks in DAP-HF as well, which may have skewed results somewhat. But overall, positive news for SGLT2 inhibitors in that class of medications, an extension of what we saw in DAP-AHF, and I think no question at this point, a class of medications that we are going to add to what we already are using in the heart failure armamentarium for reduced ejection fraction heart failure. Great. Let's look at some of those secondary endpoints. I think important indicators that maybe patients' morbidity was better. So of course with hospitalizations, but also with things like quality of life and with their volume status seeming to be improved by improvements in NT pro BNP and maybe further evidence with an increase in hematocrit. So what are your thoughts on that sort of volume status and their heart failure symptoms? Yeah, so I think that's the other side of the spectrum here. And I think those of us that work in the heart failure space, and those of us that are very familiar with heart failure studies, the design and where things are headed in the future, it's, it's not going to just necessarily be about heart outcomes. So obviously, morbidity, mortality is important. But at the same time, extending someone's life is only as meaningful as the quality of life that you're also offering them for the most part. So I think looking at things like Kansas City cardiomyopathy scores are important because not only in the landscape of, of helping to you know, extend someone's life, are we actually improving their life? So one could argue, even if a medication is not necessarily extending someone's life, but it's improving the quality of life that they do have, that it may be of utility to us. So it's something to keep in mind as we're talking about these heart failure trials and kind of the direction things are moving in. But definitely important to keep in mind in terms of the fluid status as well. That's going to play a role in quality of life. These drugs obviously have different mechanisms at play than I think many people thought at first. So at first, I think a lot of folks thought the natriuretic effect or the osmotic diuretic effect of these drugs, lowering blood pressure, etc. may have been what was promulgating these results. But as we've come to learn, there's probably more going on here in terms of, you know, necessarily how the heart is processing fuel as well that's making these drugs work. But Fluid status is definitely something that um, is important with these drugs, not only for you know, keeping fluid off of patients, but at the same time when we're initiating these drugs, thinking about you know, most, most of our heart failure patients are on diuretics as well. Do we need to be modifying diuretics? And I think when you look at the data from Emperor Reduce and the DAP-HF as well, it would really suggest, and again, this isn't a controlled environment in patients that were, for the most part, very well managed on guideline-directed medical therapy, which is not necessarily something that is translatable to to actual clinical practice, I think most of us would probably recognize that the numbers that we saw in both DAP-HF and Emperor Reduced were kind of a far cry from from what you would be able to usually maintain patients on in the outpatient setting in real life. But for the most part, the the need for adjustment of diuretic was, was pretty marginal in both trials. From anecdotal experience and 
use in the inpatient setting where we're initiating these drugs um, as I don't maintain an outpatient practice. Usually even for us, we're, we're generally modifying diuretic at least by you know 25% when we're starting the drugs up because I think there's still hesitancy with how, how patients are going to take the drug or uh, react to the drug. And that's why it's nice to have these drugs on formulary in the inpatient setting as well so that you have you know, almost training grounds or proving grounds for the drug prior to discharge 24 to 48 hours at least where you can hopefully get a patient started and get a better idea of their fluid status and how they're reacting to the drug so that you can better guess what a, an appropriate discharge dose of diuretic would be. You know, diuretics obviously or something that can change on a whim in the outpatient setting as well. But I think there's a clinical inertia for providers to be hesitant to start drugs like this, especially in the outpatient setting, not knowing how patients are going to do from a fluid status standpoint as well. So the secondary endpoints, I think, again, going back to the original question, I think are you know, just as important as what we see in, in, the, in the primary composite endpoint as well, just for thinking about the drug longer term and some of the more niche things that one would, would want to think about when starting a heart failure medication of like an SGLT2 inhibitor that can have an effect on fluid status. Yeah, and I think interesting for all of us who probably have spent less time studying in the nephrology realm is this endpoint of a reducing of the slope of renal function decline. And so that was new to me, and I think something that is important for us all to talk about. So what did you make of that endpoint and what effect it might have on our patients, particularly those with cardiorenal syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe in the in the cardiology world, something we're not as familiar with, but in the nephrology world from talking to colleagues, something that they've been looking at more more recently. But yeah, this EGFR slope is, is definitely interesting. And I think it's an interesting educational point for providers, particularly in the sense that you do actually see an EGFR decline with SGLT2 inhibitors in that first 12 to 24 weeks of therapy. So I think that could be an impetus for many providers to potentially discontinue therapy when you're following up with the patient at, you know, whatever interval, month, three months, six months. When you see that GFR decline, one may be inclined to think either, you know, heart failure is progressing, the chronic kidney disease is progressing, et cetera, but it uh, perhaps may just be the SGLT2 inhibitor. So it does present some, uh, somewhat of a clinical conundrum, but what, we, what we've seen in both DAPA, HF, Emperor reduced, and then even in DAPA CKD now, as well as some of these other studies that have come out, is the EGFR slope. While you do see a decline compared to placebo up front, you do have a, a much slower decline in GFR over the long run. So we're preserving renal function in these patients, which is equally important, more than likely to, as the cardio uh, protective effect um, that we're seeing too. So definitely an interesting finding. And I think more will come with these drugs in the, the CKD landscape based on this data. So I think really what we're looking at is a drug that probably isn't going to be used so much uh, as a diabetes drug anymore, but more or less as a, a cardiovascular drug, because we know we have data in ASCBD patients as well, now in heart failure patients, and then in CKD too. So I think we're going to have three unique indications for these drugs moving forward. But there's been quite a few nice publications since DAPA first came out, um, helping people with patient selection and how to introduce and monitor these drugs. We'll put a lot of those in the show notes, but I would love to know sort of how you've approached in your practice. You mentioned that you are able to start them inpatient. What's sort of your plan on following up and monitoring with these patients and how you just have that conversation with clinicians and patients? Yeah, absolutely. So I think... Um, first 
first question that one would have to ask is, you know, I think many institutions are, are not at a point yet where they've even added SGLT2 inhibitors to inpatient formulary. So when approaching that question, at our institution, we ultimately decided to add both of them to formulary, just given the fact that we had heart failure data out with the APA a little bit sooner than Impagos was, and we didn't want to delay being able to kind of empower our providers to offer that therapy to patients in the inpatient setting. But, you know, ultimately, if you're going to have to face a decision of adding either empagliflozin or depagliflozin to formulary, I think there are some other things to think about, too, when you just go back to the ASCVD data um, and remember that. And Declaratimi versus the Empereg um, series, uh, depagliflozin didn't actually show superiority to placebo in preventing uh, secondary events in folks with prior ASCVD, whereas empagliflozin actually did uh, demonstrate superiority. So I think that's something to think about. I'm not saying that necessarily you should add empagliflozin over depagliflozin because of that, but I think it's, it's something that, at least in my mind, if I had to choose between the two, I, would weigh heavily on me. With that put aside, I guess in our clinical practice, now that we have both of these on formulary, really what we're looking at is number one, overall with the patient, are they a good candidate for therapy? I think these are drugs that the patient needs to have decent health literacy and an understanding of what to watch for with them, especially given the risk for mycotic infections. If there's poor hygiene, fluid status, especially in patients that you know, you get ill, you get the flu, it's that time of year, can become hypovolemic very quickly with these drugs. Euglycemic DKA is obviously a little bit higher risk for the SGLT2 inhibitors as well. So you want to make sure you have a patient that's on board, well-educated in terms of what to look for for some of these common adverse drug reactions that we see with the SGLT2 inhibitors. From the inpatient side, though, like I mentioned, it's nice to be able to start these up and have have the time to assess the patient from a, from a fluid status standpoint. I think ultimately the, the question always does come back to, though, do I start this up if they're not on an ARNI? Do I switch over to an ARNI? If it's a brand new heart failure patient, what do I start up? And when you actually look at the SGLT2 inhibitors compared to some of the more recent uh, drugs we've had approved for heart failure, so ARNI, you know, MRA, even though it seems like it was a while ago in the, the landscape of things, it wasn't that long ago, the overall impact of SGLT2 inhibitors was just as much as those therapies when they were added on to previous guideline-directed therapies. So now, you know, you've got an SGLT2 inhibitor you're adding on to three other therapies, and, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20% of the patients were on ARNI in the DAPN, uh, the Emperor Reduced Trials as well. Um, probably not enough to really derive many conclusions from, but uh, just something to be aware of. Um, but you're adding this therapy onto all of these other therapies, whereas, you know, MRA, we were adding onto beta blocker and ACE or ARB. ARNI, we were adding onto beta blocker and MRA. To have that magnitude of an effect in patients that were already maintained on guideline-directed medical therapy, I mean, it's... it's it's pretty significant. So again, I don't think you're ever going to get a black and white answer in guidelines that are going to tell you what, what to add on first. It's really patient specific and it depends on the patient that's in front of you. I don't personally, you know, I think my approach is whatever you can get started on the patient, get started on them, keeping in mind that there are guideline directed doses that we're trying to achieve. So, you know, you can tick around with things on the back end, but more important than anything is getting therapy started in patients and, and titrating it in the outpatient setting. In terms of follow-up, Typically for any of our patients, and it's probably similar for other heart failure programs, when you come in for decompensated heart failure, you're usually following up with 
an MPPA or potentially one of the heart failure cardiologists within a couple of weeks. And then they'll have follow-up, you know, a month later, predetermined points as well. But I think a lot of programs also have heart failure nursing coordinators and nursing outreach as well that are in communication with these patients. So not only educating them on the inpatient side, but then following up with them on the outpatient side as well to make sure that therapy is going smoothly. But again, I think it all, it all comes back to having a patient that really understands what to look out for with these drugs so that they can kind of be their own self-advocate for the therapy and making sure that we're, we're using the drugs safely. Yeah, and I think as a yin to your yang, I'm an outpatient provider at this point in my life. And I think being part of that multidisciplinary team to manage these patients, it really does become a very individual choice on if you can even get, like you've already mentioned, all of these drug therapies on board. And if that's what the patient wants, when you throw in polypharmacy and cost and adherence issues. And so there's just so many things to consider. I'd say in our medication optimization clinic, we have patients on all sorts of different regimens. It looks like we don't have a unified plan because it's so unique to the patient. So I think there's a lot of times where I come down and I tell students that are with me to think about you know, what's the optimal plan if you know there weren't other factors, but then there's always other factors. There's their blood pressure and there's their, you know, insurance and what it'll allow and the cost of these agents. And when patients just don't want to be on as much drug and trying to identify other things that we might be able to de-prescribe to make room for the things that we think are important or are in line with the patient's goals. So it's just a complicated conversation anymore. Yeah, I would totally agree. And that's the most frustrating part when you're trying to educate students, residents, medical residents, interns, fellows, et cetera, that always have that same question of what do I do first? And, you know, you you just can't provide a uniform answer because it's so different depending on the patient. We're blessed in cardiology to have so much data, but at the same time, I think a lot of people think that makes decisions black and white, but truly it just makes it more gray than anything when you have all of that information to process and, and think about, especially with all the different drugs that we now have kind of in the armamentarium for uh, Hefref as well. So while it's, it's, it's good for our patients, the other thing that we, we haven't touched on too much either too is what are the patient's goals as well? You know, how aggressive do they want to be with their heart failure therapy and their treatment? Not everyone wants to take six, seven, eight, ten 10 pills a day. Most of these patients have other comorbidities as well. And we know obviously with the SGLT2s, that's an effect that we saw in heart failure regardless of their diabetes status. But Very rarely have I ever seen a patient that simply has reduced ejection fraction heart failure unless it's some sort of random exogenous source of their heart failure. So I think that's another thing, especially in the outpatient setting, is having that conversation with patients. And we're getting better at it now in heart failure, at least having those palliative conversations, goals of care conversations earlier on, even at the point of diagnosis of heart failure, to get a better sense of what our patients want. Because if it's not in in line with their goals of therapy, it's, you know, there's really no reason to continue to add on more and more, more drugs rather than just optimize what, what we have and kind of keep it in line with what their ultimate goals are for their own care. So anything else on this topic that you feel like we've missed that you want to make sure everyone thinks about? You know, I think really the, the thing to keep in mind again is that these drugs obviously have a place in, in, in HEFREF therapy. I think guidelines are going to soon reflect that. You know, you're going to run into insurance issues with these drugs up front. You know, dipagliflozin obviously has an FDA indication now, so makes that a little bit easier in and you might run into a little resistance with insurance companies where you have to educate them on the emperor reduced data. But 
you know, I think it's like any heart failure therapy. It takes time for it to get into practice. We're just seeing Arnie really starting to be kind of, at least at our institution, prescribed more broadly. So I don't expect SGLT2 inhibitors to, at least in HEFREF, to be used extremely broadly within the next couple of years. But I think the, the use of them will expand as time goes on and clinicians become more comfortable using them. But more than anything, again, it goes back to identifying appropriate patients, I think, that have a level of health literacy that will allow them to uh, be maintained on these drugs safely and, and kind of benefit the most from them ultimately. So yes, there's a, a wide range of ADRs that I think could scare anyone off from using these drugs. When you hear Fournier's gangrene, the euglycemic DKA risk, et cetera, those risks are there. But I think it's, again, for the most part, if you're identifying appropriate patients, the risk is is pretty minimal for, for all of those. You know, just... Going back to some of the more common ones, mycotic infections, again, if you look at the data, it really would suggest that patients experienced, anyone that experienced that had one, one infection and really didn't have a repeat infection after that. And, you know, the risk for bone fracture, that FDA warning has been removed now, uh, particularly with canagliflozin, and so it's not a class-wide effect. Fournier's gangrene is obviously serious, but it's, it's pretty dang rare to see that. And again, it's a, a, lot, a lot of that can be uh, due to potentially bad hygiene. So educate your patients, use these drugs appropriately. And I think uh, we'll start to see them more in practice and guidelines are going to reflect uh, the data that we have in front of us. Well, thanks once again for being on and hope you have a great start to 2021. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Happy New Year to all our CardioScripts listeners. We hope you have a great start to this year and everything is up from 2020. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.